We're going to start a series tonight on racial reconciliation or racial harmony. We'd rather talk about it. And uh, I call it a series even though uh, the five or six sessions will go from here probably on into May with lots of interruptions in between. It is the um, seminar for a TBI course in the making. So this is kind of a rough draft run through these sessions. I'm trying to get up to speed. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to grow. And that's the context in which you'll hear these. I will be off next week while Millard is here, and I'll be here to hear Millard because that's going to be good. Then we have a, a business meeting, but I think I'll get 30 minutes before that business meeting the week after that. Then we take a break till January 17, uh, at least break from my teaching, and, and then we're back there for two weeks, and then we'll space it out after that. Now, one of the things I want to do is in each, each one of these 45-minute sessions, have somebody do a little, this is my, my idea, a little mini I have a dream. We all know Martin Luther King's I have a dream. And uh, I would like to hear from varied people what's their dream for Bethlehem or any way they want to do that. So that's the context for asking Ken to do this for us tonight. So now it might make a little more sense why you're doing it. So come, you can hold it, or you can, whatever your preference is. Yeah, Kenny asked me to um, just share a little bit in terms of a vision uh, for our church in this whole area of diversity, racial harmony, and that whole thing. And one of the things that just, that just you know, as I look around the room, it just it dawns on me with more intensity that the vision that I would like to cast for us is one that is pretty close to, well, it, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult for us to be able to, to fulfill the vision that we have and for all of us to be able to embrace this vision. And one of the reasons why I say that is because this issue of racial harmony, this issue of, of looking at diversity from, a, from even from a biblical perspective is, is one that is, that is very difficult for the Western American white evangelical community to deal with. And one of the reasons is because lots of us just don't even see a reason to even begin to think about this issue. Because for, for lots of people, the issue doesn't exist. Now, there's been national surveys done and where people have come to, to think that there isn't an issue. We don't have an issue. And so one of the things that we've got to do is we have got to get to, to the position where we realize that there really is a problem that we've got to deal with. And, and, and so that's part of the vision. Part of the vision would be to we, for our church to get to the place where corporately and individually we come to realize that this is a problem in America and in the church today. Um, Billy Graham made a comment um, a couple years ago in uh, an article uh, called The Myth of Racial Progress. It was published in Christianity Today about four years ago. And the comment he made is that the issue of racial racism and ethnic issues is the primary, what he would call the primary deterrent to world evangelism, a primary deterrent to world evangelism. That's what 
uh, Graham said in an article in 1996 or 19, um, yeah, about 96 or 97 about diversity, that r racism and ethnic issues uh, are some of the most difficult and most arduous tasks that we have to overcome in order to see world evangelism done. I mean, that's, think about that. You know, so I, I guess I don't want to take too much more time, but the concern I have is, the vision I have is, is it possible for Bethlehem to be a pace setter, to be a mediating institution where we can, where we can stand in the gap? You know, somewhere, some church, some church that, that holds high the word of God and it isn't just pushing a social agenda, needs to be able to take a stand and stand in the gap and be a pace setter for, for the rest of evangelicalism in this area. It's a huge area. And I believe, and I think many folks, all of us on the Racial Harmony Committee and others in the church, are, I think, are beginning to believe that this church can be that pace setter. That's my vision, that we can be a pace setter that we can stand in the gap. Um, I mean, you understand what I'm saying? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult task for us to be able to accomplish. But I believe that we can do it. I believe that we can stand in the gap and make a difference. We get beyond the rhetoric and get to the place where we, that we, that we, that we understand the intensity of what this thing is all about and what the implications are. Well, I better quit. And uh... Not that you'd like to quit, I'm sure. But thank you very much, Ken. And uh, it was really interesting, the fortuitous connection that I saw tonight. I walked to, to my office to put my coat in there, and I couldn't get in because Tom Steller and Dustin we're interviewing Ken and his wife for membership at Bethlehem. So that was a remarkable thing that this was the night when he was going to give the vision statement and he's being interviewed for membership. And uh, he should be teaching this course because he gave me this big, fat ring binder that I've been looking through and learning things from. And he's taught this thing for years. He's over at Northwestern College teaching. He's around the cities teaching. And he could do a better job. But what, what I said to the... Uh, Racial Harmony Task Force, and we'll publish the names of those folks who are, are on that task force in the stars so you can say, well, who, who are those people and how can we communicate with them? But what I said to them is, I know Ken and a bunch of you around this circle could do a better job because I'm learning and uh, you've dealt with it all your life, some of you. That would not have the same impact as if the senior pastor blows his trumpet for now till May on periodic Wednesday nights. And so the one thing I have going for me is that uh, I sort of represent the leadership at Bethlehem. And if I carry this burden, it will feel like we as a group carry it, not just a little pocket of people out there. So while I don't bring all the insight that Ken does and experience uh, at least that much, and so I'm, I'm expecting a lot of feedback. I expect a lot of problems in the process. I said to the who did I say this to? I can't remember. I said it to somebody. This is almost a no-win effort in one way because you will be criticized one way or the other. 
I'll be criticized by the Racial Harmony Task Force because I said something totally wrong. I thought I was saying it right. I got it wrong. I'll be criticized by those who think you're going way too far and you're getting too political. I'll be criticized by the other side by saying you're too biblical and you don't have your feet wet and on that. It just, there's a, this issue is, a, is an emotionally no-win issue, which is one of the reasons, dozens, people don't want to touch it. You just get beat up so much. Black or white, red, yellow, brown, you just, you, you make an attempt, you think you're doing the right thing and squash, you didn't get it right. And so it's a hard issue to deal with. But I said to them, it's worth it. It's just worth it. And, and the, what I'm going to do tonight is, uh, I don't have any overheads tonight. I've got notes. And, uh, and the reason I don't have overheads is because I'm always preparing down to the wire. And didn't have time to get any ready. But I, my, my aim tonight, after I pray, is take the next 30 minutes and talk about why we're dealing with this. And I've got so many reasons that I don't think I'll get through. And that'll be okay. We'll just pick it up where we leave off. But let's pray and ask God to help us. Lord, it would be so presumptuous of Ken or me or the Racial Harmony Task Force, or any of us in this room, to think that we can tackle this massive issue that goes back to the beginning of sin and fix it in a minute without pain. And I pray now that you would come and that Ken's vision, his dream, that Bethlehem might be a piece of the solution rather than another piece of the problem would come true. Father, I pray that simply tonight, as we talk about this, these people here will catch a vision for what's wrong and what could be, and that you would work among us. Father, guard us from pity, self-pity. Guard us from pride. Pride is the most insidious thing in the world can manifest itself in ways that are inadvertent, unintentional. And so, God, crucify us, I pray. Grant us docile, teachable hearts right now, I ask. Just come and guide my mouth, please. Let my mouth be a fountain of life and not death. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. There are biblical reasons for tackling the issue of racial harmony. And if I were to start walking through them in detail, it would be the whole seminar and it would be ours. So I will just bullet them and maybe make a brief comment as we walk through. Number one. God, the absolute reality. All things relate to God. Race relates to God. Race gets its meaning from God. Race has no proper understanding apart from God. We must start with God. Second, man in the image of God. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The meaning of human personhood 
is rooted first in who we are as created in the image of God. Our physical distinctions, male, female, and various races and sizes and all kinds of things, these distinctions are secondary compared with the rational, volitional, spiritual aspects of our being persons. I believe, though sometimes the rhetoric will contradict this, race is a profoundly non-essential issue to personhood. Whiteness, blackness, yellowness, whatever, is profoundly non-essential to personhood. Now, I'd like feedback on that as to whether that's getting it wrong. But the more I ponder what it means to be a person in the image of God, just person, these distinctions that are so utterly important culturally, socially, personally, familially, are not of the essence of personhood before God. Yet real, crucial, and I think will always be there for all eternity, enriching our worship. So if you can handle both of those sides, you might feel some of the weight that I feel of the wonder of being created in the image of God. And you should be staggered at any human being you look at, not first by color or shape, but by the wonder that they're created in the image of God. That should be the staggering reality that holds us. Third, sin is a reality. I call it dishonoring God and depraving man. And the irony of sin is that it is the reason we are Hurtful of each other. I'm almost going to try to avoid the word racism at the beginning. I almost said racist there. But until I'm prepared to define that with crystal clarity so that we don't have 150 different ideas, I'm going to say things like, we are racially unloving and disrespectful and fearful and suspicious because of sin. Sin is the origin of that stuff, and, ironically, sin is one of the reasons it shouldn't exist. I wonder if you know what I mean when I say that. I mean the way Paul argued like this in uh, Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we any better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged, both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Sin's the reason there should be no disrespect and fear and belittling of others. You're as bad as I am. I'm as bad as you are. You know, if you want to check out badness or worthiness of disrespect, look in the mirror. That's the point of Romans 3, 9. So sin is the explanation of why we are that way. And it's one of the reasons we shouldn't be that way. Number four, Jesus, as an example of perfect humanity, never treating anybody disrespectfully. His focus on the lost sheep of the house of Israel was a divine strategy to reach the nations in the most roundabout, unthinkable way so that all the peoples would be dependent utterly on mercy, both Jew and Gentile. Romans eleven thirty to 32. 
He made a Samaritan, the despised half-breeds, the model of compassion in the parable. Could have chosen anybody. Could have had a reverse. The good Jew and the Samaritan on the road. And he did it just the opposite. And to get in their face, to get in the face of the people he's talking to, he made the despised half-breed the model in his parable. That's the kind of thing Jesus did. Fifth or fourth, I'm going to lose, I didn't number these. Jesus, the revelation of sacrificial love. He died to show us how to love each other. Jesus, the universal Savior. They sang a new song, Worthy art thou to take the seals and break it, open the scroll, for you were slain, sacrificed, to purchase people from God from every tribe and tongue and nation. Christ died to buy people of every color, shape, language. He died to buy us and pull us together. Jesus, the ground of our justification by faith alone. Everything I've been saying on Sunday mornings relevant here. Massively relevant. Jesus is the one righteousness that will commend any human being to God. And there is one way to get united to Jesus. It has zero to do with race. Everything to do with faith. And the reason it's faith and not works and not distinctives of any kind is so that everybody has the possibility of doing it. That's the reason it's faith and not intelligence or faith and not wealth or faith and not performance or faith in anything. It's just faith. And when you have faith, you're united to Christ. He's the one righteousness. And therefore, all those distinctives, as culturally significant as they may be and as much pain as they are causing, don't have anything to do with how you get right with God. The Holy Spirit, just going through major doctrinal focuses of systematic theology here. The Holy Spirit poured out on all races at Pentecost. Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya, around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews, proselytes, Cretans, Arabs, they all hear these folks speaking in tongues. What does this mean? Here's what it means. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's the meaning. The reason all those people were gathered there on Pentecost from all those different countries, all those tribes, all those racial dimensions, probably. I know they were mainly Jews. But a lot of God-fearers had happened in the synagogue from all over the world. They're coming together. And Peter's interpretation is, in the last day, the Holy Spirit's going to fall on all flesh. The church, one body of saved sinners reconciled to God and each other in him. We'll deal in some detail with Ephesians 2 and so on. Eschatology. Is eschatology about race? After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands, and they cry aloud, Salvation to our God, our God, who sits on the throne. So all the tribes, all the peoples, all the tongues, all the races, all the languages are saying in the last day, this is eschatology, our God, not your God, and this is my God, but our God. And Sunday morning at Bethlehem should be a rehearsal for that.
Lastly, the commands of Jesus and his apostles. This, this, this could go on for weeks. You know, if you, if you ever wonder what, does the Bible speak to race? The answer is on every page. If you, if you go, you know, if you look up race in the concordance, you get a totally distorted idea of what the question really is. For example, when you, when Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting the Old Testament there, and they've turned that into love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And he, he expands it. I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. So, even if, even if, because of sin, you consider some race an enemy, you got no right not to love them. If you're a Christian, if you're a Jesus follower, you got no right to disrespect them. you got no right to put them down. Tell jokes, use language that's belittling or slurs or participate in jokes or anything like that. You have no right because your Lord said, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. And that's putting it in the worst light of enmity. And it isn't in that light, I hope, for most of us. Matthew seven twelve, in everything, therefore, treat People the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets and the stories that will be told about the kinds of prejudices that have been exercised should shame all Christians who participate. First Peter 2.12 Honor all people. Okay, that's the end of my doctrinal section. Why are we addressing this? Because as I read the Bible, everywhere you look, it teaches things or reveals things that impinge on this issue. Okay? That's my first point. Now, the rest is a, is a kind of shotgun from John Piper's experience and assessment of today's situation. Okay? And I'm sure it bears all the witnesses of my, of my, uh, Sin and uh, narrowness of vision and historical position. I don't have these numbered either. So, first, we deal with the issue because it is an ever-present issue. Right? Front page this morning. Minneapolis schools face wider racial learning gap. And I won't read the content of it because the very reporting is a problem. There's no, there's no way to satisfy anybody in this issue. But praise God for anybody who will address the issue and risk it. Because I'm sure there'll be people who read this and say, that tribune. And yet, it's there. It needs to be said. So, here we are in 20th century, what, 50 years after civil rights. And, according to this book, one that I found it hard to put down the other day, Winning the Race to Unity by Clarence Schuler, he's black, is racial reconciliation really working? He says, page 20, the race problem in our country is getting worse, not better. Well, as long as I've got this book open. Um, here's what puts it. You got to realize how, how, how short 
140 years is. You know this is short, don't you? You know what happened. You know, 140 years, we're talking civil war. What's the civil war all about? It's about the economic realities of the South. Slavery. That's just 140 years ago. So, my father, now this man's in his 40s, I would guess, just by looking at him. I don't know how old he is. My father told me that in South Carolina, more than 40 years before, before, he had seen one of his boyhood friends lynched because he dared look at a white girl. Now, now get this. This is a man a little younger than I am talking to his dad who saw a black man lynched for looking wrong at a white woman. That's yesterday. That's yesterday in the black experience. So don't, don't think, oh my goodness, can't we let bygones be bygones or something? And then you look all around and you find the ongoing, I'll just list off some things now, ongoing segregation of the churches. So we got Bethesda down the street, five blocks, Love Arthur Agnew, there they are, and here we are with a sprinkling of color on Sunday morning and here tonight. What is that? You know, what, what is that? It's very complex. No easy solutions. Nobody on the racial task force would say, oh, we got this figured out. We know how to fix that. Nobody's talking that way. We just know when the world looks at that, they say, hmm, what is it? What's that mean? It doesn't carry a very clear, helpful message. Whatever the explanation, it's just not a clear, helpful message about what we are. Examples of economic inequity remain and have racial significance. Quote, from an ethnic view, 14% of the overall population lives in poverty. 33% of African Americans live in poverty. 29% of Hispanics live in poverty. 12% of Asians and Pacific Islanders live in poverty. 11.6% of all whites live in poverty. Nearly half, 46.5% of the nation's black children live in poverty. Now just leave off explanations for a minute. That's a lie. That issue's there. It's there. It's, it's racially connected. Poverty is racially connected. Or take examples of legal inequities with racial components. Quote, Dallas Times. At one point in our history, rapes were treated differently by law if a black man raped a white woman. Let me stop here. So I can, I can, I'm, I know that I'm talking black and white, and I know the issue is yellow and red and brown. I'm going to keep talking mainly black and white and assume it has applications to all. We'll get representatives here of varied groups so they can give their vision. But there's a couple of reasons for this. One is my personal history. Two is... We have a history in this country that is so uniquely horrific with regard to black-white relations that it simply stands forth with greater urgency than any other 
group. And there are other reasons. But know that I'm aware that the issue is uh, Asian, it's Native American, and it is Hispanic, and so on. I, continuing the quote, I think you still have lingering effects of that, namely different laws for black and white in rape accusations. A study done before the U.S. Supreme Court outlawed the death penalty for rape in 1977 found that a black man convicted of raping a white woman was 18 times more likely to be sentenced to death than men convicted of rape in any other racial combination. In Dallas Park, the median sentence was one year when a black man raped a black and 19 years when a black rapist victim was white. Now, these are just a little smidget of the kind of legal things that are just yesterday and still today. Of course, you, you read the papers as well as I. You know about U.S. prisons and you know all kinds of things. In other words, the, the issue of race is is so present and so big that to say it's a non-issue is to live with your head in the sand. Another quote, 1986 study in the Dallas Morning News. I think these quotes are coming from Dallas because I got them from uh, an article written by a Dallas seminary professor uh, four years ago. In, in a 1986 study by the Dallas Morning News found that Dallas County prosecutors routinely found that peremptory challenges were used to remove more than 90% of the eligible black jurors in 100 criminal trials, and so on. Examples could be given from educational inequities, political inequities, health care provision inequities, and so on. Huge issues. Um, another issue, reverse discrimination and racism is also alive and well. That was one of the most winsome things about this book. This man is smart. He knows how to keep white people reading. Namely, he begins with reverse racism, right? And it makes us feel a little bit understood. And the story he tells is simply that he grew up black in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And for whatever reason, he had several very close black friends. This is now, what, 70s? I don't know how old he is, or if he even gave the dates, but 30, 40, 30 years ago, maybe. And... uh he played ball, and and people kind of look at, askance at this. And then he takes his white friends to his hood to play basketball in his gym where no white people ever come. This is just the, the boys that play together. And he brings this kid in here to play ball with him, and he's good. And they treat him like dirt. They foul him all over the place. The rest don't call any fouls. They make fun of him, and he, his mouth drops open, he says, at the first recognition of what he calls in the book uh, reverse racism. There's no innocent people here. Another reason. Confusion over diversity issues in our day because of male-female issues and homosexual issues. This should make blacks very angry and every other race. And it does make him angry because I've seen him interviewed in San Francisco. When the gay pride movement 
And here, let me just say a softening, winsome, hopefully compassionate word that in this church, we want people here wrestling with homosexual struggles. We want them here. What we will preach against is not that people are like that or that they can't be helped or loved or folded in like that. We'll preach against if you're wrestling at that level, God's call to you is chastity. And a resolution not to live it out as though it doesn't matter who you have sex with. Well, when the militant gay side, who not only recognizes that some people wrestle with that, but condone it and praise it and push it, and do it under the banner of the same diversity that the black and white and red and yellow are trying to get together under, it ought to make people upset. Because it isn't the same. Same thing with male and female. There is a real difference between male and female that ought to be honored. And therefore, to, to lift the banner of diversity as though you can treat Male and female, the same way you treat race? That's wrong. That's one of the, the foundation stones of this church, is that to be male and female means there are unique things, like separate bathrooms. To put it bluntly at the bottom. Separate locker rooms at school. Separate motel accommodations when a debate team goes to Colorado. Blew me away when one of our guys came to me and said they, they shipped out the debate team from the university. This was about 10 years ago and housed them together in rooms. Well, what, now I wouldn't actually to say anything about race. See, see I'm getting that? You shouldn't put black and white in separate rooms if they're on the debate team, but male and female, yes. And so this, this confusion of the difference we're talking about here is one of the reasons we got to address it. Because the church, you can't be sucked into the secular diversity movement without some clear-headed distinctions. you got to make some distinctions here. Otherwise, you're going to join the multiculturalism thing, and there'll be a big rainbow hanging over your kid's door at the high school, and it'll say, like Benjamin's did the other day, the, a few years ago, said, uh, celebrate diversity, respect all. Uh, black, white, men, women, gays, your m mother could be one. Now that just lumping together like that is deadly in our high schools. So that's one of the reasons we need to talk about this, I think. Um, where are we? Inadvertent discrimination. See, one of the things we're going to learn here, I hope, over the months, is that Bethlehem does things, says things. I probably say things that, to me, don't care any racist, I use it, any connotations of disrespect at all, and yet is heard totally differently by people of color. So as a church, we got to just say, okay, it's going to be frustrating. I didn't mean that. Just okay, just relax, you know. The doctrine of justification can really, can really give a lot of peace here. 
This, this is a great foundation to stand on. What we're doing on Sunday morning is a great place to stand. Loved and accepted by God, apart from works, through faith alone. Now stand there and take it. Eat it. It's okay. You don't need to be defensive. You can learn. And if you think it's been overstated, you say that to yourself and you adjust and you do what you believe is right to do. But we all commit inadvertent discrimination of various kinds. Here's another one. What about affirmative action? That's a complex issue, right? you got non-Christians and Christians saying the right thing to do is, is affirmative action to remedy long histories of racism. And you got others saying that's just another form of it. So what, what are we going to do? What, what, how do we figure that one out? Another reason, um, our presence downtown Minneapolis in a diverse area like ours calls us to something maybe more powerful. That's how to say it. It seems like there's an urgency for us that might be different from a church that doesn't have color in its neighborhood for, say, 10 miles. You live in Dalbo, Minnesota. I have no idea what the racial mix is in Dalbo, Minnesota. But I know, I do know, I can say this, we got a Christmas card from the Wood Woudsters today. Some of you may remember, he was here for a year. They live in Orange City, Iowa. One black family. There may be more now, I was there a couple of years ago. One black family out of 5,000. And a college. Now, what racial harmony looks like in Orange City, Iowa is going to be a different burden and actuality than it ought to be here. We're smack in the middle of Minneapolis, and if we don't make an attempt at it, why should we expect anybody to make an attempt at it? So I think our presence is crucial. Uh, two more, and then I'm done. Worship style issues are now and always will be critical. And I know no solution because uh, it's not just two races or two forms. It's whites who can't get on the same page. And it's a terrible, terrible abuse. My wife is constantly cautioning me on this issue to talk about the black anything. Blacks are as diverse as whites are diverse. It's not the black this or the black that any more than the white this or the white that. So you got blacks all over the page. You've got Asians all over the page. You've got Hispanics all over the page on worship. You've got whites all over the page. There is no solution to this except a miracle of grace and talking to one another and working at it and forgiving each other for every Sunday morning. That's the only solution I know. And finding a place to move together on the continuum of infinite diversity. Last point. Um, I'll show you another book before I quit and give you that last point. Divided by Faith is a new book. It was just uh, dealt with in Christianity Today with a, a symposium with J.I. Packer as the chairman. And it's uh, stirring up a lot of a lot of talk because of this thesis. Our argument is that 
evangelicals desire to end racial division and inequality and attempt to think and act accordingly. But in the process, they likely do more to perpetuate the racial divide than they do to tear it down. The thesis of the book is the best laid plans of evangelicals are are counter-effective right now. Now, I have not read this book. I've only read this much of it. That much right there. Thirteen pages. Uh, but I'm hoping to move through it, and I hope they'll say something hopeful about that and helpful. And I hope I can. Um, last point. This soul mustard colored book has proved in the last five years of our church's life to be a wonderful work of God. Took a year and a half for a group of 23 people to put this together. That banner up there, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, is on the front. That's the mission statement of our church. It may be till I retire. I don't know. We may be able to say it better. We may want to tweak it. We may junk it and say something else. But that's the mission statement. Now, inside are uh, a spiritual dynamic on page two, and then six fresh initiatives. And as as um, inadequate at this point as some of our responses to these are, I praise God this is in black and white or brown and beige. I praise God because the the racial harmony task force and any of you can t- take one of these off that folder out there, lay it down in front of the elder board and say, what are you doing about that? Like number three, six fresh initiatives, interracial reconciliation, quote, against the rising spirit of indifference, alienation and hostility in our land, we will embrace the supremacy of God's love to take new steps personally and corporately toward racial reconciliation expressed visibly in our community and in our church. So this tonight and the subsequent nights that I deal with this is one attempt to put action behind that fresh initiative, which was written five years ago. Now, there have been other things done, but there's so much more to do. Okay, we're done, and it's time for you to eat bagels with each other and get to know each other better. And I would like you to pray. I suppose that one of the things Ken saw as he looked out on us is twenty percent of our people here, and how will the other eighty percent ever get on board? So pray about that, would you? Pray about that. In January, I will address the issue on Sunday morning. I always do on that Sunday right around Martin Luther King, and maybe there are other ways we can get it more on the front burner of more people. But invite people to come. We'll try to keep you posted. You know, next week is Millard Erickson. That's relevant. That's relevant. And then the following week, I'll get 30 minutes and then we'll do our business together and we'll try to keep you posted when these are coming. So those who would be especially interested can be invited. I know you got questions, so uh, I won't take time to answer them now. I'll close and stand here. If you want to come up, that's great. Let's pray. Father in heaven, here's the beginning. It's an offering of desperation and prayer. 
You said, how shall I render back to the Lord what he has done for me? And the psalmist answered, I will lift up the cup of salvation and pay my vows to the Most High. So, Lord, I pray that you would fill the cup of need that we have as a church and turn these times together into a fruitful new day for Bethlehem's increasing expression of the last day of racial harmony. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.